Galatians chapter 6 is where we're going to be headed. And as we make our way in the Bible to Galatians 6, where we hopefully, prayerfully, will be wrapping up the letter to the Galatians today. By the way, that's kind of exciting because as a church, we've only been around about 18 months where we covered a whole of two books, Matthew and Acts. And now here we've already covered the letter to the Galatians over the last eight weeks or so. So it's exciting to make headway through Scripture. But as we're headed to Galatians 6, let me just remind you that Paul writes this letter because there was confusion that existed in this Galatia region. In this whole area, the confusion that existed surrounded their salvation. What was actually needed or necessary for them to be saved. And what Paul's trying to communicate throughout this letter is that it's by grace through faith that we're actually saved. In fact, in one of the most famous passages in all the New Testament, the Roman road there in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, Paul says that it's through confessing with our tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that's what's necessary for salvation. It's just that simple. It's no more complicated at all. And what Paul's trying to do is get them to understand that because what's happened is a group of uh, Jewish false believers have now come in from Jerusalem and infected the church with what Paul calls another gospel. But the reality is it's not another gospel at all. It's not good news. That's the word gospel. That's what that means because this alternative gospel is full of rules and regulations. And the reality is anytime we begin to add anything to our salvation other than just belief in Jesus, it's bondage. It means that it's now dependent upon me. What can I do? What can I maintain? And so this is why Paul says this is not good news. But also the reality of this is for our flesh, we always want to have some kind of say in our salvation. We want to have some kind of stake in this, especially with us being from America, right? We want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We want to go get busy, get to work. And so we want to somehow have a stake in our salvation. And this is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, you guys will be really uplifted by this. Uh, he says, are you so foolish? <laughs> are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? That what has started in the spirit, just through simple belief, what God has done to come inside you to begin to transform you from the inside out, are you now trying to make it perfect in your flesh? And it's, it's foolishness. And so this is really what Paul is writing this entire letter about, to share with him about the grace of God. And so personally in chapters 1 and 2, he shares his experience with grace, his own personal testimony. Chapters 3 and 4, we looked at Paul giving them the practical side of grace, the doctrine or the teaching, the instruction. And lots of times we get worried and freaked out about doctrine, right? It sounds scary, big word. But the reality is with no doctrine, without sound teaching, we don't have a foundation whenever our faith gets shaken up a little bit. And so Paul gives them doctrinal understanding examples from the Old Testament. He goes back to the story of Abraham, one they would know for sure. And what he said is grace came before the law. You guys are all worked up about the law, but grace came first. Just like with Abraham, he had Sarah as a wife before he ever had the picture of the law, Hagar, the work of the flesh, as a wife. Because grace was always God's plan from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 15, uh, God tells uh, Abraham there, he believed and he, it was accounted to him as righteousness. And so this simple belief was actually accounted to Abraham as righteousness. He wiped out all the other stuff. He gave him a robe of righteousness as a result because grace 
came before the law. The law was 400 years later. Now, all that for Paul to say, positionally, how do we walk in grace? The reality is for you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are now positioned, seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. It's a beautiful position to get to be in. How do we live like that? How do we walk in that? What does that look like? And what it really all comes down to is when you realize that it was by grace that you were saved, it should manifest love. Because who are we in our flesh, right? We're humbled when we realize who I am, who he actually saved me from being. My eternal destiny was hell and damnation eternally. And so as a result, what other feeling could I have other than love for him? And I can love him. What 1 John chapter 4 says is that we can love Christ because he first loved us. He gave his life for me while I was yet a sinner. And so I can love him because he first loved me. Now, all that to say, we pick up in chapter 6, verse 1, where Paul writes, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And so Paul's now come off of chapter 5, where he's wrote about this manifestation of grace in our life, which looks like love. And what does love taste like? It's the fruit of the Spirit. You'll remember, singular, not fruits. It's one fruit. It looks like love. But when you bite into the fruit, it tastes like joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And so as it tastes like that, how will it manifest itself from there on is us coming alongside one another to restore someone who has fallen. And what God is all about, and what Paul is trying to express is he is all about restoration, not revelation when it comes to people's sin in their life. And so as an example of that, I have you turn back to Genesis chapter 9. And here, I know you guys love it when we go back to the Bible stories. We've got the Bible story of Noah there, right? And we all remember the story of Noah, and yet there's a section of this that we don't often uh, share with our kids downstairs. Because as Noah comes off the boat, God gives him and his family, the only ones that survive, he gives them a command to fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. And so Noah takes this command. He says, well, God says be fruitful. What better way than to go plant a vineyard? He begins to become a farmer. He plants a vineyard. He starts to raise grapes. And what we're told there is as Noah raises grapes, he then says, you know, what am I going to do? I've made a lot of grape jelly. A lot of jam's been made. You know what could be made with these grapes? A little bit of wine. And so Noah goes out. He harvests the grapes. He makes a little bit of wine. And new wine in particular has a little more alcoholic content. And Noah, not being careful, he proceeds to get himself full on drunk. And I don't mean just a little bit of drunk, just a little buzz. I'm talking like sloppy, uh, walk around naked kind of drunk. And so Noah is fall down drunk. He ends up falling down naked inside his own tent. There's a reason we don't share the rest of the Bible story, but it's right there for you in Genesis chapter 9. Only to have his son Ham see his dad fall down naked drunk in his tent. And what does Ham do? He proceeds to go and tell his brothers about it. He has an opportunity to come alongside his father, who, by the way, was not a perfect man. There was only one of those in our scripture. That's Jesus. He wasn't perfect. No doubt seeing everybody you knew other than your family die in a flood, there's probably some trauma surrounding that. 
There's probably a lot going on in Noah's mind. And so he had himself a weak moment. He falls down drunk in his tent. But what Ham does is he goes back and tells his brothers about dad, wanting to reveal his dad's sin. But what his brothers do, what Shem and Japheth do in verse 23, they took a garment, they laid it on their shoulders, and they went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. What they did was they decided to restore their father, to come alongside their father, to walk backwards. And what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, is that love covers a multitude of sins. And this is what love looks like in our life. It looks like for those that are overtaken, for those that have slipped and stumbled and fallen, and this word overtaken, the, the picture we get from Paul is this isn't someone practicing habitual sin or someone who has turned away from Jesus altogether. This is one like in a race where someone has cut them off. They've literally been sideswiped by this sin. They've been surprised. It's come up on them. And so for this one, we're, we are called not to want to reveal it to everybody. And far too often, this is us, right? The, the see, I told you so. I told you they weren't a good Christian. Didn't you see it coming? I knew it was coming. Just a matter of time. But no, instead, we're called to actually restore, to want to come alongside. And what Paul says here at the end of verse 1 is interesting. He says, consider yourself lest you also be tempted. At the end of this verse, he says, consider yourself. Consider your own ways. And what I love is this phrase, when I consider myself, is but by the grace of God, there go I. When I consider someone else who has fallen or stumbled, who's tripped up, who's made a complete mess about things, I realize I'm about one or two bad decisions from that same thing. In my flesh, I'm capable of all sorts of atrocities. That's the reality. And so... Paul is giving a warning that we should consider ourselves and who we are in our flesh so that we are humbled by that. Not so that we can revel in that, so that we can be humbled by it. And also, there's this idea of understanding your weak spots. As you come alongside someone to restore them, you know what areas you have a weakness or a propensity to stumble. And I would encourage you to take someone along with you. When you're an accountability partner, it's a great idea to have someone else to also be accountable to yourself because easily we can be tripped up as well. And so there's this warning there for us as we examine our weak spots and come alongside one to restore them. Now, verse 2, we read, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And what we covered uh, over the last several weeks is that Loving your neighbor as yourself is the summation of the law. What Paul is saying is come alongside and bearing with one another is actually fulfilling the law of Jesus Christ. It's, it's coming alongside and getting involved. And far too many times it's just as easy for us to say, I'm going to stay away from that. I'm going to stay at arm's length. It's not worth me getting in there and getting in the middle of that because it's a mess. But this is where you find the book of James and Galatians actually coming together. But lots of times we feel like these two books, James, who says, look, faith without works is dead. And in a little sneak preview, that's what we'll be starting next week. That it's believed that this is a works-based kind of a book. But the reality is these books aren't uh, contrary to one another. They're complementary to one another. Because what Paul says is the outpouring of love in your life looks like you're going to want to get involved. You're going to want to come alongside someone 
even though you know you're going to get a little bit dirty. Now, verse 3, For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The other excuse we get is, look, I'm just too busy. I'm too busy or I'm too important. I am too important to get my hands dirty with this thing right there. I would encourage you, if you feel like you're too important to be involved, read John chapter 13. Spend a little bit of time reading what the God of the universe did just hours before he was going to be tried and beaten and brutally murdered. He took time to wash the feet of his disciples. He took time to wash their feet of all things. And so if the God of the universe can stop what he's doing because he's not too busy to wash the feet of others, uh, that it tells me that maybe I can stop what I have going on to come alongside someone and help them. Now, verse 4, but let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Another thing you might have said to yourself, even if you didn't verbalize this, is that if I get involved, what if nobody notices? What if nobody notices that I put myself out there? Or even worse, what if I get hurt now that I've been involved in this situation? Or the cardinal sin of all sins what if they don't appreciate it? What if they don't say, thank you? That'd be the worst. But here's what Paul's saying is, don't even consider another. Instead, focus on you. And I would encourage you to not only focus on you, but focus on who are you really trying to please. Is it Jesus? Are you really all in because he's called you to do it? Because here's the thing with expectations. Expectations are oftentimes completely and totally from hell. They are from Satan himself. Because as soon as I place expectations on you and how you will react and how you will respond, guess what I've done? I shifted the power in the entire relationship. It's now on you. My happiness is now dependent upon all the expectations I put on the other person. And more often than not, people are going to let you down. They are not going to respond in the way you want them to respond. And so instead, where should our expectations lie but in Christ? In Christ Jesus and what Hebrews chapter 13 tells us, and this is why we can put our expectations in him and trust him in this. And I just lost Hebrews. I lost the letter to the Hebrews. Oh, I found it. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, the only one that will not ever let you down is Christ Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one you should actually put any expectation. And the promise of the word is, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will be right there the entire time. And so what then are we to do with expectations? I had the opportunity to read this book. It was called The 100-0 Principle. Uh, it's a short book, big letters, not many pages, my kind of book. So I'd recommend it to anybody. But it's uh, called The 100-0 Principle. And the idea behind the book is any relationship I enter in or any, uh, any type of deal I go into, I should expect to give 100% of my effort. And I should expect back nothing. Absolutely zero in return. And as a result, I will never be disappointed. I will never be upset in that relationship. 
And so I would encourage you because lots of times, even with our kids, even in our marriages, even in our work relationships, we go into it with some kind of expectation or, dare I say, as a pastor, well, surely there'll be a church on Sunday. Ooh, guess what? I've now set myself up to be disappointed, to fail. And so going at these relationships, expecting to give my all because Jesus is worth it, not because the other person is going to say thank you. My expectations now go to zero, and I'm not disappointed. Now, verse 5, for each one shall bear his own load. Now, wait a minute. Verse 2 says, I should bear one another's burdens. Verse 5, Paul says, I should bear my own load. Important to note, there are two different words being used here in the Greek. The idea of bearing your own load is like you carrying around a backpack with, say, your lunch in it. I don't know about you, I'm a big fan of my lunch. I have no problem carrying my lunch because mostly I can't wait to eat my lunch, right? I'd probably eat your lunch if it was in my backpack too while I was at it. And so I'm very excited about carrying my own load, my own lunchbox. But what Paul's saying here is for each of us, God has given us something that we are capable and able of handling on our own. We're able to carry that load ourselves. But there are times, you will admit, in your life where things have come around where I cannot handle all this. I cannot take on all this burden. I, this is too big, too much for me. And guess what? There's the spot where Jesus is going to saddle right on up and he's going to carry that heavy load. And we, as a community of believers, can come alongside one another and we get to be Jesus with skin on. We get to come alongside and go, you know what? I'm going to bear this with you. This is too much. I am excited to be in this spot, to bear this burden with you and to come alongside people. Now, verse 6, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And so here we have the spot where Paul basically says, look, for the one who is teaching, it is good for you to share with that one who is teaching you the word of God. Now, many times I have seen in church settings where for the one who teaches the word, um, the church is ready to run him right down the river. And it's embarrassing. The way pastors get treated, the way that they get chased off, the way they get talked about, it is downright shameful. Paul is saying it should not be so. Now, all that to say, when I look at what this congregation has been about in our almost two years, it is humbling. You guys have been so kind, so caring, so giving to our family. I cannot thank you enough for what you have embodied with this very verse that Paul is sharing. It, it's almost embarrassing on the other side. We are so blessed to have you as our family. So thank you for the way you have done this, even if you didn't know it was in the scriptures. Now, verse 7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. 
And so here Paul shares with them a practical example, the example of sowing and reaping. And interestingly enough, when we look at physical sowing, like a farmer would do, and spiritual sowing, you see a lot of similarities. And so three laws to sowing and reaping that I have put up here for you, I've probably shared with you in the past, but nevertheless, uh, through repetition, I'm going to keep sharing it. So you might want to write it down. Uh, or not, I'm just going to share it again later anyway. So wait till the next time I share it. Uh, first of all, in the laws of sowing and reaping, is that you always reap the same kind that you sow. In other words, uh, you don't go out in the field and plant corn and then tomatoes pop up, right? That's ridiculous. There's nobody that would believe me planting corn, I fully expect to get corn. Or if I plant tomatoes, I expect to get tomatoes. And this is what Paul's saying is God's not going to be mocked. Whatever you sow, whether it's by the flesh or by the spirit, you're going to see that same kind of crop come up. Now here's the next law of sowing and reaping. You always reap after you sow. No one goes out to their garden and plants it and expects tomorrow for it to pop up. That's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. The same thing is true spiritually. That that thing that we sow we sow into our life or into someone else's, we can't expect that to pop up immediately. There's going to be a time span before we see that crop begin to sprout up. The third law to sowing and reaping is that you always reap more than you sow. What did Jesus say in Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the sower? He said that some seed fell on the good ground and it came up some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. And you know this to be true from just basic farming heartland examples is that no farmer goes out and plants a bushel of seeds and only gets back a bushel of corn. There's uh, many times a very large surplus that comes in, hopefully, prayerfully for our farmers. They're looking at two, three hundred bushel to the acre. This is what they're hoping for because you always reap more than you sow, which is either really encouraging or really terrifying, depending on what you're sowing. And all this to say what Paul began in verse 7 by saying is, don't be deceived. God is not going to be mocked. All things are going to come back around and God is going to make all things right. One side note I wanted to point out for us is that God doesn't need us to defend him. Many times we can break into and begin to become the God squad where we can't wait to snuff out sin in somebody else's life. We're defending the Lord at every turn. God is not going to be mocked. He is going to make all things right. He doesn't need me to defend him. I need him to defend me. And one of the things he's trying to keep us from is, I'm not capable of handling or handing out the wrath of God to other people. In doing that, I am suspect of sin in my own life. And so, what God is saying here is, I am going to make all things right. But as you go and sow things, be very careful about what you sow. Because what Hosea chapter 8 verse 7 in one of the most terrifying uh, verses in all the Old Testament says that you have sown to the wind and now you're going to reap the whirlwind. Boy, how many times in my life I have reaped a whirlwind because of whatever I have sown years prior, months prior. I see all this coming back like a tornado blowing through my life. So what then am I to sow to? What 
Paul says, remember this is all one letter, what he said is, for those that are determined in chapter 5 to sow hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, if I'm sowing those things, don't be surprised if I get the whirlwind of those things back in my life. Now, not to leave you on that note, but if you skip down, what he says about sowing to the Spirit is the fruit is love, and it tastes like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, and against such there is no law. And so if I sow those things, praise the Lord, it's a whirlwind of those blessings back into our lives. Now, all this to say, where Paul went in verse 9, is that don't grow weary while doing good. So many times for you, for me, I'll speak for me. I grow weary. I get tired. Like, Lord, I'm sowing what I think is good seed, and I'm not seeing any kind of crop. This is exhausting. I feel like I just want to quit. Ever been there? This is why Paul says, don't grow weary. Because he knows we are liable to grow weary. We're going to get tired. Because in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Be encouraged as you sow these things into people's lives. Be encouraged as you sow good seed. Don't grow weary while doing good. Because what James, a little sneak preview into his letter, is going to say in chapter 3, verse 18, is this, that the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And in my favorite version of that comes from the nearly inspired version. That's the NIV. It's a little NIV joke. But I love this verse. It says that peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Boy, how I've memorized that verse. When I've been busy sowing all kinds of awful stuff, and I have to be reminded peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Oh, how badly I want to reap a harvest of righteousness, don't you? We do that through sowing peace in our families and in our lives and in the people around us. So be encouraged, you peacemakers out there, because we are called to have faith that it will happen. We will see a crop produced. Now, verse 10 Therefore, you remember, you Bible students, when we see the word therefore, we ask ourselves, what is it therefore? It refers us back to the previous passage. So in light of everything we've just looked at and sowing and reaping, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. We are called to do good to all, but especially, Paul puts the parameters down very tight in a tight window to the household of faith. That means to start with those seated in this room. <laughs> we are called to do good, especially to those who are right here, right now in this spot. We're to be an example. And I would encourage you, the household of faith includes other bodies of believers who might do things a little differently. They might have a different take on things. But guess what? We are so quick to attack others. They don't do things like we do. Must be wrong. Bunch of sinners, if you ask me. Right? We are called to actually do good. To love on those 
even if they happen to be wrong a little bit. Right? We, we are called to love on them. Because what Jesus says in that same chapter that he washed the feet of the disciples is, this is how people will know that you're my disciple and that you love one another. He was encouraging this group of people, these 12 that were gathered there in that room, to love on each other and let it flow out of that. Now, verse 11, Paul says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Now, earlier in the letter to the Galatians, we read that Paul most likely had an eye disease. It was probably that thorn in the flesh that he referred to. It was debilitating. He couldn't see very well. And so often his letters would actually, he would dictate and someone else would write. But in this spot in verse 11, he says, see the large letters I'm writing. Even in my bad eyesight, I want to make sure that you know this is coming from my hand. Not so he could rebuke them, but because Paul loved these churches. He wasn't defending himself with this letter. He was defending the grace of God, and he loved them enough he didn't want them to be in bondage. And so he's sincerely loving on them by writing this. And in verse 12, he said, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may suffer they may not suffer the persecution of the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire that you have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And so what Paul's saying here is they're trying to compel you to adhere to the law. That like a salesman showing up at your door, knocking on the door, I want to sell this product to you. It's so wonderful. And the reason they want to sell it to you and their sales pitch is you'll be able to avoid persecution Boy, how easy would it be for us to just go along with the ways of the world? Everything the world tells us to do, it'd be so much easier. We could avoid so much persecution if you would just do things like everybody else, right? But this is not the way of Christ. And so this is what Paul's saying here is that these people want them to adhere to the law of Moses, to go along, to go with the flow, to avoid persecution so that they could be like them. But the problem is they were all in bondage. The very law they were trying to sell to these Galatians, they couldn't even keep it themselves. They needed grace. That's the reality. Now, verse 14, Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What Paul says is that if I'm going to boast... I'm going to boast about Jesus. And, and it's so much my flesh that wants to brag. I don't know about you, even spiritual things, right? I pray so much. I read my Bible. I pray at home. Like, I do all these things, and I want to put myself out there. Look how good of a job I've done. What Paul says is, that, look, here's the reality. Without Christ, I'm nothing. I'm a sinful man dead in my transgressions. That's the reality of who I actually am. And so if I'm going to brag on anybody, I'm going to brag on King Jesus. And I'm not going to spend my time comparing myself to how I'm doing against everybody else or against myself. I don't know about you, but I have a really bad habit of saying, well, doing a lot better than what I used to be doing. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's no comparison. I was awful back then. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, 
He says, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Did you guys get that? Yeah, me too. This is why I'm going to write my own version. So in the BAV, the Brock Ashley version, it's going to say, uh, when we compare ourselves against ourselves, we confuse ourselves. That's basically what Paul is saying. When we compare ourselves with ourselves, all we're doing is confusing ourselves. But instead, we're to compare ourselves to Christ. He's the example. He's the perfect one. And when I compare myself to him, man, I'm nothing. I'm a worm. I am of all men most pitiable. And so it makes me that much more thankful for grace, that I'm a sinner saved by grace, which says that when I'm in a conversation talking about who I am today, that man today, I'm going to brag on Jesus. I'm going to brag on what he's up to in my life. I'm going to do my best to make him famous, him and him alone. Now, verse 15, for in Christ Jesus Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And so if I'm going to brag at all, I'm going to brag about the new creation he's made me out to be. Some of you want to talk about that old guy? Guess what? I hate to tell you, he died. He actually died years ago. I didn't know. You didn't, hear, you didn't get the news. Apparently, he is dead and gone. And raised up is a new creation in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. And not only a new creation, but guess what? He's now given us a new nation. Here specifically, Paul mentions the Israel of God. We are given a new nation, a new tribe, a new group of believers to come alongside and just as with God originally with the nation of Israel, his plan all along was to call them out to set them apart, to be an example, to actually attract people to Christ. They got it all backwards. They began to think that they were called out because they were something special. But the truth is, they were called out because they were not special at all. Not even a little bit. The most remarkable thing about them is they were utterly unremarkable. And when you look at Abraham, he was the son of an idol maker. I mean, why would God call this guy from Babylon to bring him to the land of promise? It was because he was so unremarkable. And the same is true with you and I. We are utterly unremarkable. Aren't you glad you came today? I've told you you're foolish and completely unremarkable. Yeah, welcome, where we feel good about each other, to Woodlawn Chapel. Now, here's the thing. What 1 Peter chapter 2 says is that I love this. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. You're a set-apart people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're special. I love what the old King James says. You're a peculiar people. There you go. You can add that to the list. You're also peculiar. <clears throat> you're a set-apart nation unto God. Not because you're all that, but because through our ordinary nature, he has made us extraordinary. So that when people come alongside us and they say, why is it you have so much hope? How is it possible you're hopeful? You can point all that back to King Jesus. 
You see, we are remarkable because he is remarkable. That's the most remarkable part about any of us is that he would come down to save us. What a beautiful promise. Now, verse 17, as we head down the home stretch. For now, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. In the words of Forrest Gump, what Paul says right there is, that's about all I have to say about that, right? What Paul's also saying there is, look, I've heard about enough. For you parents in the room, I'll just speak for us dads on Father's Day. This is where we go, zip it, zip it, because I said so. What Paul's also communicating through that, though, is there are times we have told someone in our life the truth and pointed it out so much that we just have to say, you know what? I've told you everything I had. <laughs> like, every pearl I had, I gave to you, and you ate it. And so at some point, I'm just done talking about this. This is what Paul's essentially saying. I'm done talking about it. I've shared with you it's by grace through faith that you're saved. I don't have anything more I could say. And here's the thing, that in my body, I bear the marks of Jesus. You want to know how much I believe? I have been branded for Christ. What a beautiful thing for him to say and communicate. Branded as one of Jesus' own. And what does his brandings look like? If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you get the resume of Paul. And what he says there is um, beatings. Yeah, I've been beaten with rods. I've been beaten. I've been scourged five times. 39 stripes I've received across my back. I've been stoned to death. I've been shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day out at the sea. You want to talk about being branded? I've been branded. But I consider it all rubbish for Christ Jesus. Every single bit of it. I take it all over again to be branded with Christ. Now for us, that wars against our flesh. Oftentimes I want to do whatever I can to save my own skin. But what we are encouraged to do is to be willing to be branded for Jesus. They may have names and words for you. Jesus freak, Bible thumper, always willing to pray what makes you so special. Nothing except Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, died for my sins, you see. Branded with Christ. So who are you branded by? Let me just ask you this. Are you willing to be branded as one of his own? And can you answer for the hope you have? What an unbelievable hope you now possess because of the work that he's done for you. Can you answer for that? In verse 18, Paul says, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so as Paul opens this beautiful letter with grace, he closes this letter with grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. He gave it all for me at my absolute worst. And this is something that I could not do for myself. What is grace? It is receiving what I do not deserve. An eternity with him. That is humbling to say the very least. And as a result of that, knowing that he did it all, it now allows me, it affords me the opportunity to come alongside others, to partner with them, to bear one another's burdens, and to help them along the way 
because of all that he's done for me. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the letter to the Galatians. Thank you that as believers we can come alongside others, not because we're special or knowledgeable, but because you're so special. You have made us remarkable because you are so very remarkable. Lord, help us as we consider that to have today and throughout the weeks to come in our life the manifestation of grace, which looks like love. Looks like love, Lord. Help us to be able to express that with joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Lord, help us as we pour that all around into the people around us and we sow good seed. Lord, we desperately want to reap a harvest of righteousness. I am tired of reaping a harvest of my flesh. I've seen what that produces. Lord, help us to be a people that sows to the Spirit and give us the endurance, the ability to stick with it until we can see that harvest. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, would you please stand?